Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 2 to 7, and then verse 14 to chapter 3, verse 5. Hosea, chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Verse 14, the Lord's mercy on Israel. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of God.
Thank you, Andrea, for reading Scripture. You know, it's really good to be back among you, Grace Baptist Church, to serve and minister the Word in your midst. I want to thank you and the elders for loving me and my family by graciously giving me a six-month sabbatical rest. So thank you all. Thank you. Before we get into God's Word today, let us pray. O Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your Word. May we see in your Word the beauty, goodness, and truth of Jesus Christ. May this sight of our Saviour make our hearts tender towards you and towards others. May your Holy Spirit use your Word to transform our hearts and our lives for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm delighted. You know, there has been a number of weddings this year. I'm happy to see a number of my young friends getting married. I'm happy to be at their wedding to witness their love express when they made their marriage vows as part of their marriage covenant. I'm delighted when they made a covenant with each other to be faithful to one another, to cherish and care for one another as long as they shall live. You see, a covenant can be said to be a relationship, a relationship bound by love and promise that calls for responsibility to that promise. So when they made their vows, they are saying in essence this, this is how much I love you and now I seal it with a promise to make an exclusive love commitment to you. This marriage covenant they made points to a greater picture of God's relationship with His people. In fact, in Hosea, God's relationship with His people is pictured as a marriage covenant. We see this in Hosea 3.1. The marriage covenant illustrates God's love commitment to His people and His people's responsibility to Him. And we covered this in our recent sermon series in Deuteronomy. We also saw how God's people, time and again, they fail to uphold their responsibility to their promise. We know that the Bible tells us God is love. So how does God's love look like? What does God's love commitment to His people look like when His people fail time and again, fail to keep their promises, when they fail to keep an exclusive commitment to God. We shall see this today as we look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 2 to 3, 5. But first, a little context, a little context. As Eugene covered last week, Hosea the prophet wrote mainly to the northern kingdom of Israel during the period of the divided kingdom. For much of Hosea's ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel was experiencing a resurgence of wealth and affluence. In fact, they were pretty much like Singapore, wealthy. Okay? Hosea chapters 1 to 3 tells us about Hosea's own marriage and family life, his marriage to Gomer and their children. It's because Hosea's marriage is an acted parable. What do I mean by that? It's a visual, three-dimensional, living picture for the relationship between God and Israel. And what we get mainly from there is the image of Israel as an unfaithful wife. 
chapter 4 to 14, expands of chapter 1 to 3 by giving a series of accusations, warnings, appeals, and motivation for God's people to abandon their adultery and to return to God. As preached from Hosea chapter 1, 1 to 2, uh, 1 last Sunday by Eugene, what do we see there? We saw God forsaken by His people, and yet God remained faithful. He disciplined and loved faithfully. We also saw the marriage relationship between Hosea and Gomer, and how the naming of his three children reflected God's judgment on adulterous Israel. Although God's people were unfaithful to the covenant, God's love still pursued them. And this gave them and us a glimmer of hope. We will see today this divine love okay, in our passage today. A love that warns of judgment, a love that brings restoration, and a love that loves the unlovely. How does judgment, you ask, I know you may be thinking this in your head, how does judgment show God's love, you wonder? Look with me then to Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 to 13. 2 to 13. Why is God warning of judgment against Israel? A November 2015 Straits Times article asks the question, why do couples in Singapore go for divorce? Can you guess the answer? One in four divorcees surveyed cited adultery as the main reason for seeking separation. It's because, my friends, adultery is a betrayal of the marriage vows. Adultery is a serious breach of the marriage promises. And likewise, the nation of Israel has committed adultery by whoring after other lover gods especially the Canaanite fertility god Baal. Israel had broken their promises of exclusive commitment to God. And yet, and yet, even in verse 2, we hear the divine love of God for His people. To make sense of this first set of prophetic words to Israel, we need to get, two metaphors, get the two metaphors in use here. Here, mother... Mother, the word mother, points to the corporate nation of Israel and children points to the individual Israelites. So in essence, Hosea is telling the children, individual Israelites, to plead and warn their mother, the corporate nation of Israel, for God is considering divorcing His people because of their adultery. God, the cuckold husband, pleads lovingly with his people and warns them to repent and put away the adultery. If not, God will strip Israel naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Hosea warns of judgment and punishment. Israel will be humiliated and abandoned to her fate. And Israel will be made like a wilderness, like a parched land. And behind the imagery of these threats is the warning that Israel will be conquered by foreign nations and be sent into exile away from the promised land. God will visit the curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28, 
upon a faithless people who broke covenant. You know, children will resemble their parents. You sit with uh, our young families on the left side of the worship hall, you notice how alike the children are to the parents. However, when Hosea's friends visit, questions will arise about his second and third children. They do not resemble Hosea. You remember, right? Hosea's second and third children, they had questionable uh, paternity. They were not sure whether Hosea was actually the father. Likewise, Hosea goes on to question Israel's spiritual paternity in verse 4. Is the Lord God really our God? Or are we children of Baal? Because they are children of Baal. God will show them no mercy in executing judgment. For Israel, Israel had pursued other lover gods. But even worse than that, they even attributed what God had provided for them to Baal. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my all and my drink. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? A wife attributing her wedding gifts given by a husband to a lover. How misguided and sad is that? And because of this, God will bring judgment and punishment on Israel. And we see this in the first therefore of this set of prophetic words. In verses 6 to 7, God will therefore hedge up Israel's way and build a wall against her so that she cannot find her way to her lover gods. Because of Israel's sin of adultery, God will punish and discipline Israel. God will isolate her from Baal. God will block her off from the lovers she sought. But this discipline and judgment flows out of love. Show me a parent who doesn't ever discipline a child and it's likely that the parent does not really love his or her child. And the result of God's punishment, then Israel shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it is better for me then than now. What's the result, my friends? The result is that Israel will be dissuaded, dissuaded from seeking Baal and will return to the Lord God. Israel will return to the Lord God. So how does judgment and punishment and discipline show God's love? It shows God's love because it shakes us free from the grip of idols. It shakes us free from the grip of idols. And we do love our idols, don't we? <laughs> I confess that I do too. No, earlier this year, I had just gotten back late the previous evening from Chiang Mai after a week at a Christian conference. Now, it was a tiring trip, you know, and it was made worse by the crowds of Chinese tourists visiting over the long Chinese New Year holidays. And I had CG that day, and I did not go. You know, and as the typical, you know, um, typically, you know, have you have the inner lawyer in your head, I justify it in my mind. I said, well, I was just at a church planting conference. Quite holy, right? Church planting conference. And it was a tiring trip back. I can skip CG, I don't need to go. And the fact was, CG was in the late afternoon and I had a whole morning to rest. I love my comfort 
of my idol of comfort. I love my idol of comfort. And a concerned sister in Christ from my CG spoke to me a couple of days later. And she asked me why I did not attend CG. You know, I hum and ha, I sheepishly gave my excuse. And she gently corrected me. She practiced formative discipline. You know, she said, why, why are you like this, you know? Uh, you should be attending CG. Why are you, you know, uh, wanting to, to, to rest? Why are you seeking comfort? She helped shake me free from my idol of comfort. And I thank her for caring enough to be God's discipline in my life. Sometimes, my friends, it takes God's loving discipline to shake us from the grip of idols. And my friends, how do you respond to God's discipline? Do you take it, do you take it as God's means of love to shake you from the grip of your idols? How do we, GBC as a church, view discipline? Is it something to be avoided because it's uncomfortable? Something not talked about because it's embarrassing? Or do we understand it to be God's means of shaking us free from the grip of idols so that we can be gripped by God? Do we understand discipline is God's love in action? Ultimately, God's love judged Jesus Christ as guilty in our place as Jesus bore the punishment for our sins. As a church, we should understand that discipline is God's love in action as we pursue holiness, godliness as a church together. Unfortunately, Israel still did not fully return to the Lord God. When she said with her lips she will go and return to the first husband, she still did not acknowledge that God gave her these riches. Instead, Israel used the riches for Baal. Functionally, you need to understand this, functionally in her life and behaviour, in her practice, she had mixed devotion. She had mixed commitment. The word to describe this was Israel was syncretistic in their worship. She worshipped both God and Baal. Very much like typical Chinese, right? As long as any gods can give us benefit, we worship them all. Okay? But, but lest we throw stones, doesn't that very much describe us as well? We may confess the right theology. We may sing the hymns. We even say amen to the sermons on Sunday as we worship God. Then comes Monday. And, we funct and functionally in our behaviour, we show that we worship at the shrine of some other idols. The idols of power, the idols of control, the idols of individualism, the idols of traditionalism, the list can go on. And we come to the second therefore. Because Israel was not exclusive in her devotion and commitment to God, then God will continue to punish and discipline Israel. And we see this in verses 9 to 13. In response to Israel's adulterous way, adulterous unfaithfulness, God will do what? Look at the, the various words there. God will take back. God will take away. God will uncover. God will put an end. God will lay waste. God will make of them a forest and the beast shall devour. God will punish her. God amplifies 
and ramp up his judgment and punishment. Israel's agricultural produce, Israel's wealth and wages will be all taken away from her. Israel will be shamed in the sights of other gods, in the sight of her lover gods, the Baal. All because Israel has gone after her lovers and forgot the Lord God. Heavy, right? Does God seem so different in the Old Testament and the New Testament? God in the Old Testament seems so judgy, right? So angry all the time. And God in the New Testament seems to be full of love and grace. Is this true? Is this true? No. Because we see in verses 14 to 23, we see God's love and grace on full display. We see divine love that brings restoration. Grace reigns in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is what we see in the second set of prophetic words. We see the third, therefore. When we reach here, after seeing the first two therefores, you will expect another set of warnings and judgment, right? After all, Israel has not really demonstrated repentance. But we get a dramatic change about. Look at the text. You know, if left to my personal God work in progress self, if I look at this, I will say, enough is enough. Three strikes and you're out. But God does not treat Israel that way. We get a glorious display of love and grace instead. How does God's love look like? His divine love brings restoration. We see God pursues and allures His people. God gives His people what they do not have. And God reverses the the curses of the covenant. You know, I'm single, but I like to people watch, so observe people, and especially young couples in our church. We can tell when a man is attracted to a woman, right? He will go out of his way to spend time with her. He will give little gifts like flowers and chocolates, or maybe I'm old-fashioned. Okay? He will speak tenderly to her. He will try to allure and charm her. Romantic, right? Don't blink and miss the language. This is the very same romance language used to describe what God will do to Israel in verse 14. I will lure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. God will pursue and charm Israel. Israel, still unrepentant, still pursuing her Baal lover, but God's initiate the pursuit to allure her. God will bring Israel into the wilderness where they first made the covenant with one another. It carries this idea of a couple going back to the place where they first committed to love each other so that perhaps their love may be rekindled. God will restore to Israel her vineyards and make the valley of Echor a door of hope. What is this? What is this valley of Echor? If you remember the valley of Echor, it is found, it's the place in Joshua, the book of Joshua, where Achan was punished in the first act of disobedience by Israel in the promised land. God will reverse that and make that a door of hope. God will make the punishment that Israel has suffered so far 
a door of hope. Because when the grip of idols has been loosened, when the grip of idols has been loosened, God will answer, Israel will answer God back as when the nation was young. Israel will answer God back with love, responding to God very similar, in a similar way to when God first brought them out of Egypt in the great Exodus event. God pursues and allures His people even when they do not deserve it. You know, you often hear the Christianese, Christianese saying, the Christian lingo, you do your best and God will do the rest. We hear it very often, right? But that always puzzles me because, so how much do we do and how much does God do? 50-50? I do 50%, God do 50%? Or perhaps 70-30? I do 70%, God, do, uh, God does 30%. Or 30-70? The problem with this saying is that when taken as a principle for all of the Christian life, it seems to tell us that we are all not that bad, you know, that we have something to contribute. Is this the testimony from Hosea? Is this the testimony from Hosea? No. Rather, God in His divine love gives His adulterous people what they do not have. And God helps them to do what they are unable to do. In verse 16, God declares, in the day when Israel returns to God, Israel will call God my husband and not my Baal. What does this mean? Baal in the Hebrew language means Lord, Master, or Owner. But it's the name used for the Canaanite fertility god. So when Israelites were worshipping and calling Lord, they were instead worshipping the Canaanite fertility god rather than Yahweh God. But now, when they return, they will call Yahweh God my husband. That's a wonderful word. Why? Because it symbolized both the worship of Yahweh God, whom they covenanted with, whom they made the marriage covenant with, as well as the intimacy they will now have with God. God will even remove all whisper and memory of Baal from Israel. We see this in verse 17. God, God will do for His people what His people cannot do for themselves. In verse 18, we see God will make His people lie down in safety in the promised land. God will achieve peace and security for Israel by making a contract with the animals in the land and by abolishing war. God will do for His people what His people cannot do. And we see this again in verse 19, where God amazingly reverses His previous declaration that Israel was no longer His wife in Hosea 1.9. In the language of engagement, God will betroth Israel to Himself forever. Forever. It gives us a sense that Israel will be brought into a new relationship with God, a sense of a new covenant with God. And in this relationship, God will give the bright price of righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and mercy to His people. Verse 20 tells us God will be faithful to this new covenant, God is utterly dependable and can be relied on to keep His promises made. And Israel shall know the Lord. Israel will know God in a deep and intimate way. 
God will do for His people what His people cannot do. He will establish a new relationship with Israel. Finally, God will reverse the curses of the covenant. God will reverse the curses of the covenant. The display of God's love in bringing restoration to His people comes to a glorious conclusion in verses 21 to 23. God will restore fertility to the land. We see this in verse 21 and the first half of 22. God will change the children's name, Hosea's children's name, to to reflect now God's deliverance and salvation. God will declare His deliverance and salvation. And we see this in the second half of verse 23. And in between these two verses, Jezreel is mentioned. Jezreel, the name Jezreel, originally had meant calamity and trouble for Israel. We read this in Hosea chapter 1, verse 4 to 5. But now, but now, it implies salvation, blessing, and prosperity. Because Jezreel means God's souls. Previously, Hosea had associated the name Jezreel with bloodshed. But now, he takes the same name and uses its meaning to teach that God will provide for his people. God will plant, will sow his people in the promised land in salvation and blessing. The curses of the covenant of famine in the land, of exile of the people of Israel will be reversed. Will be reversed. Ultimately, the curses of the covenant was absorbed by Jesus Christ, the curse reverser. Through Jesus Christ, we get to receive the salvation blessings of the new covenant. <clears throat> you know, I was encouraged to hear that last month, a group of women in our midst started praying for the prodigals. They gathered to plead for God, for the people that are dear to them. People who have walked away from God and the church. I was so encouraged to hear from a dear brother this past week who shared of his efforts to reach out to two other men who have walked away from the church. As a church, we want to reflect the character of God and praying for and pursuing those who have walked away reflects the loving, pursuing heart of God. How can we do this better as a church? Is there someone who has rejected Christ and who have walked away from church that he can reach out to this week? You know, you can simply drop them a text message or an email as a start to find out how they are doing. Make an effort to reach out. Is there someone that God has brought to your mind, even in this service, this message, that you can be praying for? Put him or her on your prayer list and pray for them this week. Gather together. Gather together as a church. After the service, pray for us as a church to lovingly reach out to them, even if they reject us or respond badly towards us. Because God loves the unlovely. Hosea 3, verse 1 to 5, returns us back to the narrative of Hosea's message. Next slide, please. God tells Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You know, when I, when I look at this verse and I was just thinking, reflecting on it, this is 
amazing. Can you imagine this? The language used, go again and love. Now God tells Hosea to bring Gomer back and to love her again. We know that Hosea obeyed God and redeemed Gomer. But I cannot help but wonder what was going through his head. Go and love Gomer again? Can any one of us love our spouse who has been unfaithful to our marriage vows and committed adultery? Maybe we can bring him or her back and live with them, but to love again? Humanly speaking, it's not easy to do. But God loves His people. Even though they had committed adultery and turned to other gods, God loved to pursue them. And this is how God's love commitment to His people looks like. And Hosea obeyed. He went to redeem back Gomer. Gomer, who had fallen into such a desperate state that she probably sold herself into slavery. Again, Hosea's relationship with Gomer serves as a picture, an enacted parable of what God will do. Hosea brought Gomer back to his home. They remained faithful to each other, but refrained from sexual relationship for a time. This picture, this picture serves to point to Israel's eventual exile by Assyria and their prophesied return from exile. For afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their king God, and David, their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. There's a promise that Israel will return from exile and their hearts will be transformed into hearts of flesh, God will write His law on their hearts, prompting them to seek out God and David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And they shall come in reverent fear to God and enjoy His goodness in the latter days. God keeps His promises made in His covenant with His people. God loves the unlovely. You know, my friends, one of the dangers of reading Scripture is that we're often tempted to put ourselves in the place of the heroes of the Bible, right? When we read the story of David and Goliath, we put ourselves in the shoes of David, right? When we read of uh, Jonathan and uh, uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, we put ourselves in uh, the shoes of Jonathan. But if Hosea here points to who God is, who are we in the story? We are. Goma. We are Goma. You know, a story told by D.A. Carson captures this well, and I adapted it somewhat for context, because you're Singaporeans, right? Picture this. Picture Jonathan and Ling walking down East Coast Beach, hand in hand. They've kicked off their slippers, and a wet sand squishes around between their toes, and Jonathan turns to Ling, looks deeply into her large black eyes, and says, Ling, I love you. You know, I really do. Let's go register for HDB flat. So what what does he mean? What does he mean here? Well, in this day and age, he may mean nothing more that he wants to go into bed, get her into bed with, with him. But let's assume that he has some sense of decency. 
The least he means is something like this. Ling, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile captures me. Your charming good humour, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you captivates me. I love you. What he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Ling, quite frankly, you have a bad case of bad breath. So bad that you embarrass a troop of unwashed monkeys. You know, your nose is so big that you belong to the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, greasy that it could lubricate the engine of an MPV. Your knees so disjointed you could make a camel look elegant. And your personality, ah, your personality, you make Genghis Khan look like a wimp. But I love you. So now, my friends, when God comes to us and says, I love you, what does he mean? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me? I can't live without you? Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you captivates me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. Does God actually mean this when he says, I love you? This, after all, is pretty close to some therapeutic approaches to love, to the love of God. And this is even in some of the songs we sing in church. You know, we must be pretty wonderful, right? Because God loves us. And dear, oh God, is pretty vulnerable, finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes. When God says he loves us, when God says he loves us, does not God mean, really mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are people of the bad breath, the bubbles nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personalities. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly. You are like Gomer, an adulterer. But I love you anyway. Not because you are attractive, but because it's in my nature to love. You see, my friends, God's love for us is not generated by the loveliness of the love. But His love for the unlovely comes from God's perfection because God is truly and perfectly love. And because God keeps His promises that He made in His covenant with His people, God loves us. And His love is demonstrated by the greatest son of David, Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sakes. So what? What now? I mean, one of the things it should do is it should stir our affection anew for God, the God who loves us. But what, what, what next? No, our covenantal God loves and pursues His people. Because our God loves and pursues us, we can return and seek our God. We are Gomer, and yet God loves us. To my non-Christian friends, Maybe this is the first time you're hearing about the love of God for Gomez. His divine love sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place on the cross, absorbing in full the punishment that was due us because of our sins. Maybe this is not the first time you heard this, but you have hesitated to respond to God's call on you to believe. You hesitate because you know you have done bad things in the past, you know that you are as unlovely as Gomer. 
But the good news is this, God loves Gomez. And He invites you today to turn to Him, to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is, if this is what you want to do, please do not hesitate. Please feel free to approach any of the pastors and elders of this church and any of the leaders in this church after the service. We'll be glad to speak to you. The news that God loves the unlovely is also good news for those among us who often feel like failures. Perhaps you're often gripped by guilt. You struggle with hidden sins and you feel that you are unlovely and unworthy of God's love. You wake up and struggle that God would accept you, you as a Christian. You feel rotten and often struggle with low-grade depression. Remember, God loves Gomer. He loves the Gomers like us. Let God's Word speak to you. Daily remember God's love for the unlovely to you. Yet there may be some among us Yet there may be some among us who feel offended at being called gomers. God's love for the unlovely challenges the self-righteous. And this is where, my brothers and sisters, I stand with you. For those who have heard my conversion testimony, you would know that I was like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Self-righteous. Don't think I need God. Did not think I needed God. So from one recovering self-righteous person to another. How can you tell that you are self-righteous? Self-righteousness is often expressed in a critical and judgmental spirit. Check your words. Do you often criticize others? Do you verbally assassinate others in the church? Or, Or do you do this? Do you complain behind others' back to sympathetic listeners so that you can feel better about yourself and you couch it as sharing prayer requests? We need to remember that all of us are gomers without exception. We need to understand that as gomers, there's nothing inherently lovely about us sinners. But God still loves us. We have nothing to prove. We can rest secure in the love of God for the unlovely. So may this love humble us and correct us so that as a church, as a church, we can encourage one another with our words, showing humility and love for one another. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we, as a church, we are like this? So how does God's love commitment to His people look like? God's love looks like the greatest son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who loves the unlovely, He seeks out and makes friends with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, who pursues His people, He laid aside all His rights and privileges of heaven, giving them up as He pursues His people all the way to the cross. Jesus, who is the curse reverser, He bore the curses of the covenant on the cross as He took the punishment in our place. Jesus, who gives us what we do not have, He on the cross not only bore our sins, but in a divine exchange, gave us His perfect righteousness so that we can be right with God. He, on Pentecost, gave us the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, so that we can be empowered to live the life of obedience to God. Jesus, who is our bridegroom, 
who now awaits us, His church, the bride of Christ, to one day share with Him in the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is Jesus Christ's love for the unlovely. <laughs> what sweet divine love that prompts us to worship. Can I now invite the worship team to come forward? Let us now sing to our God who loves the unlovely. Mm-hmm.